It's really good to see you all uh, this evening again uh, at church in the evening. And I'm really excited about uh, our time that we have together uh, to look at 1 John um, again. And so uh, this evening, if you, if, for those of you that were with us, uh, we've, we've, uh, Aaron actually did the great work of taking all the chapters and verses uh, out of the book of 1 John so that we could have a chance to hear it as, as a whole, as a letter. And so last gathering, we had a chance to hear it all read at once. A lot of the house churches this past week heard it as well, read as one full letter. Um, and some of us were like, that was really cool. Some of us feel really shaken because there's no numbers and places that you can really focus on. And so when you're trying to talk about it, you're wondering, how do I say in paragraph 17, you know, four lines down, one word over, how do I do that? But it helps us to come to a point of really seeing the spirit of a letter, to like receive a letter. Um, and so many times when we come to the scriptures, we come for inspiration or we come for instruction. And those things are really important and we should come to the scripture for those two pieces. Um, however, the whole idea around our summer series is to soak in a book, to think of the book, to think of 1 John like a hot tub. And we just sit in it and wait till our hands and feet become pruny and gross. And we just allow it to sort of soak over us, just to wash us through and through, and just to begin to change us. Uh, and so it's really exciting for me to have an opportunity to sit with a community over the course of the summer to soak in a book, um, to have the words that we speak we begin to catch ourselves using the same phrases. We begin to see things the way that we sense John is seeing things as he writes this letter. Uh, our thinking and our speaking change. The, what we see changes when we soak in something. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about there being two different kinds of readings. Uh, the reading in which we use a book for our own purposes and a reading in which we receive the author's purposes. Um, this quote is really helpful. When we receive it, we exert our senses and imagination and various other powers according to a pattern invented by the artist. When we use it, we treat it as assistance for our own activities. Using it is inferior to reception because art, if used rather than received, merely facilitates, brightens, relieves, or palliates our lives and does not add to it. And so my prayer is that we receive the book this evening, that we receive the book this summer instead of trying to use it, but we become people that receive it. Um, how many of you have ever seen a kid before or spent any time around a kid? Me, I'm the only one. Okay, some of us, right? Uh, so being around kids is an educational experience that uh, you don't want to pay for, uh, but you, are, you enter into their into the world. They're contagious, they're, they're weird, they're, they're a little gross, uh, but they're just these amazing little people. Um, kids, they don't just read books. They swallow them whole. They don't just hear stories. They're captivated by them. They don't just watch movies. They become a part of them. They allow their identities to be completely formed by stories. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite little ones, um, and I'm partial because he's my nephew. His name is Lincoln, and Lincoln is a wild man. Um, he is one of the coolest kids I've ever met, a lot like your kids. But a few weeks ago, I heard this great story. He was at my parents' for a sleepover, 
And after the wild and crazy of what Lincoln is, he finished up eating and there's stuff everywhere and he's running around the house. Um, and all of a sudden my dad said, it got really quiet. And as those that have been around kids, you know when it's quiet, that's when you have to begin to worry. Um, and so he's kind of looking around and, and um, what happened was Link uh, got these small boxes and kind of put them together and crawled up. Uh, he's about five. And so he got up on this box and he took uh, he took a, a hand mirror. And so I know that sounds dangerous in the hands of a child. And so what happens is my dad said he comes running, he's like looking for Link, and then he hears this scream, followed by this massive amount of tears and weeping. And so my dad runs in, he goes, Lincoln, what's wrong? And he's crying, and he's like inconsolable. You cannot help this kid. He has lost his marbles. He is so upset. And so finally, after the, <laughs> you know, that kind of crying, um, he finally calms down enough at, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? And Lincoln looks at my dad and he goes, I don't look like a pirate. And he was so heartbroken, the fact that he did not look like a pirate because he was convinced that he was a pirate. And so the good, the good part of the story is a makeshift eye patch out of some socks and some yarn and a bent spoon later for a hook. He was good to go. He had that whole thing ready. Um, and, you know, as kids have a way of receiving stories, they don't, just, they don't just hear it, they receive it. They begin to make it their own, and they embody it so well. As I said, here's a picture of your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and Princess Aurora hanging out on my couch a few years back. Um, kids are swayed and convinced by the best story told. They're convinced by the stories that call for response and for one that can be incarnated, embodied, and lived out. And this is not just kids, my friends, all of us, adults included. I think one of the reasons why we become dull is because we forget that stories have power and that they can really begin to change the way that we think, act, look, and feel. Um, all of us, whether we recognize or not, we live our lives uh, in conjunction to particular stories and narratives. Some of them are super good, some of them not so good. Uh, but these stories that we live by, they bring us to questions. They bring us to questions really about our identity. Because stories form our identity. When, 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 this, when this story, when this letter of 1 John was read to a community, this began to form identity. Scripture as a whole is an identity-forming narrative. It forms who we are from the inside out. And what it's supposed to do is it enters into our beings and just changes the way that we live because that's who Jesus is. It's not just a book about facts and ideas. They're fantastic and we can get that. But it's a book that we're called to incarnate, to live out, to see it completely transform who we are. And so when we hear the words foundational truths, uh, many of us or some of us who grew up in uh, certain kinds of churches, we begin to like twitch or we get really nervous um, because we're not really sure exactly what that means. But as we read First John, we need to understand that we are invited to look at a found, at, at, at what we're invited to look at is foundational. And it's foundational by the means that it is, it is, it is a means of our identity formation and who Jesus is and who we are. The things that we understand to be true about God have deep impact on the way that we decide to live our lives and the way that we begin to live. And John is not just writing things down so that we can look at a checklist of beliefs and say, yep, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. But he is calling us 
and he is begging us and he is inviting us into these truths that anchor our lives into something so much bigger. Anchor our lives to a much bigger story, a story that calls us, that asks us, that pleads with us to live in a completely brand new way. And so it's with this heart I want us to hear uh, the first three paragraphs again. Uh, I have a reader. She's going to come forward and use this mic. And so uh, I want to ask that you do this. Some of you feel like you have to read along, and that's fine. But if you're able to stretch yourselves, close your eyes and let the words wash over you. John chapter 1. We declare... I think so. Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you uh, also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and, and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins he who is faithful and and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say that we have not sinned we make him a liar and his words his word is not in us my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Thank you, Bria. <clears throat> the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not just ours, but the whole world. And so as we come to this opening few paragraphs, a couple things I want to point out to us. Uh, one of the things we have to come to a grips with, come to grips with, is an under, is, a, is an understanding of some ancient Jewish thought uh, on on life and on ages and ages to come and things like that. So Judaism saw history, the complete history, in two parts. Uh, part number one is the present age. And that is the age where, where suffering reigns and evil runs rampant. We see brokenness, loss, injustice, racism, oppression. Think about Israel uh, under, under the, the wrath of Egypt, living in slavery. That is, that is the present age. And so that is, that is part of what Jesus is thinking. That's part of what, first John, that's part of what John is thinking as he's penning 1 John. And then uh, the, the, the ancient Jews had another part of the age that was marked in this way, and it was called the age to come, which is the age where God puts everything right, where he rescues from evil, he rescues his people from evil and suffering, he restores to what life should be, uh, and he renews brokenhearted, he binds up wounds, it's, it is God is on throne, 
and he rules the world, and all the evil that is done is undone and gone. And so one of the things that we wrestle with is the word for age uh, that we've translated has mainly been translated into English as the word uh, eternal or eternity, um, which has pushed the emphasis on the age to come as we look at that first paragraph, um, this idea of um, the eternal life uh, that we have seen and testified, that the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us, that this idea of eternal life is something that is purely spiritual, that it has nothing to do with the world of time, geography, and matter. And so this is what many people hear when we hear the term eternal life. And this is in the very opening paragraph of what John is doing. And this isn't wrong to think of eternal life as something that's bigger than just what we see, touch, and feel. But the problem is, is when we put it in strictly spiritual terms, it kind of leaves out the dirtiness and the earthiness of what it means to follow Jesus. And so it's not wrong, it's just not the fullness of the picture of what the New Testament writers, including Jesus, are thinking about when they talk about this term, the kingdom. And so Judaism is, is really looking at this whole idea, understanding about this present age and this age to come. And they believe that when this Messiah shows up, as we read the prophets and the law and the different books of the Old Testament, what we understand is that they believe that when the Messiah arrives, that he will usher in the age to come. As I said, the prophets and the Old Testament continue to proclaim about this day when God shows up. And one of the phrases that they use that it would be called the day of the Lord. And they use this image, if, if we read through Isaiah and some of the other Old Testament prophets, their imagery is just so brilliant. They talk about things like, uh, it'll be like the lame walking, the lame leaping like deer, uh, dead bones rising up out of the ground and all of a sudden putting back on flesh and bone and becoming an army, lions laying down with lambs, and kids playing hide and seek in cobra nests and not being injured. They talk about poor being cared for and the world being right and all broken relationships being healed. There's this beautiful word that we find in the Hebrew scriptures called shalom, this peace, this abiding peace, this God peace that sets over humanity and turns everything right. Any lion witch in the wardrobe fans, it's like when Aslan shows up and winter disperses and spring erupts forth. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture. And so Jesus, in his first sermon, he preaches this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus' ministry, my friends, we have to get this into our bones. It looked just like that. He preached, repent for the kingdom of God is near, which is sort of like code speak to repent. The age to come is at hand. This new life, this new stuff, this thing that we couldn't even imagine or understand is present, it's coming it is here. And Jesus embodies this story. When, when we hear the, the, the term, and Jesus, uh, by this, Jesus, you know, um, uh, fulfilled this prophecy, I think sometimes we kind of think Jesus was like walking around looking at all these little things and trying to make sure he was doing that. He was embodying the story of Scripture. He was living it out. It got into his bones, into his DNA. He was the story. That's why they call him the Word. That's why John is so focused on calling this guy the word because he was the word and the word was alive. 
And so when we understand this idea that, that the kingdom of God, that Jesus embodied the story, that completely radically changes what it means for us to be disciple, disciples and followers of Jesus because we are called to embody the story as well. We need to embody it like Lincoln embodying a pirate, to look at it as a reality. And so my friends, we fast forward to Jesus breathing his last breath on the cross and being placed in the grave. And so think about the followers who are ready for this age to come, super excited, it's happening, it's here, God's gonna set all things right. And then Jesus dies on the cross and he's placed in the grave. Feels like another false start. Feels like the things in which we hoped would happen are now coming back to reality. But then the unthinkable happens, and Jesus comes out of the tomb, alive. He even conquers death. That this age to come is so much bigger than we thought. It's not just about these beautiful things of justice, which we are so excited about, but it even conquers death. That we thought evil was placed in one position, but it's actually so much bigger that God's glory is so much bigger that it conquers death. All these things set right, including life and full life, because Jesus shows us that what full life, what the age to come looks like, it looks like a life where death no longer has any participation in what has happened and what happens. And so Jesus, he ascends into, into heaven, and he tells the disciples to go sit in churches for the rest of your life and begin to wait for me to come back. No, we know what he says. He says, go. He says, go. He invites us into the story that he begins in the age to come and says, go. We're part of this. This is who we are. This is who you are. Your identity is shaped in me, the one who, who you watched live to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the kingdom coming, to proclaim the kingdom here. And now I'm sending you the spirit so you can go do that. This is not just some pie-in-the-sky ideology where he's like, you know, let's just come up with some really cool ideas and we can put them on the walls and, and people just love it. Like, this is radical stuff. This is Jesus calling his people, calling those that were crazy enough to follow him to the cross, not very many, and, say, and, and, and inviting the ones that ran away to say, come back. You're welcome. There's space at, there's space at this table for us to be part of this. And so as we look at this, the age to come, the proclamation of this good news is this, that forgiveness, that new life, new reality, new creation, this is our reality. This is the reality of the people that decide to follow Jesus. And we see this time and time again in the stories of people sitting around this room, stories about our lives when we lived in darkness, when we were sunk by guilt and shame and sin, when our lives were so dark and dismal, and there's always that beautiful word, but then I met Jesus. But then Jesus showed up and he picked up our heads and he wiped away the shame and the guilt. He healed me, he gave me a family, and he tells us to go. And when I say family, I mean this family, the church, a new identity. People with no identity now have an identity in the kingdom of heaven. And I love that these aren't sterile stories, these are really messy and they're really beautiful. These are stories that we celebrate every year at baptism, which I'm super excited about. Shameless plug, July 30th, make sure you're there. And if God is calling you to be baptized this year, please come see me or JR. Um, but we have to understand, we're not fully there yet. Jesus said he's coming back and his rule and reign will begin at his second coming. And so we live in this weird in-between space 
that I like to look at as life in the overlap, this now, not yet kingdom, where the followers of Jesus, and we have to understand this, the followers of Jesus that John is writing to, they fully bought into this idea that they are part of this new kingdom. They're part of the age to come, that it has already happened, but we're just living in the overlap, waiting for it to fully be present and fully revealed. The followers of Jesus, they believed that the age to come was fully present, but not yet fully revealed. And so Jesus brings this eternal life, this age to come, as, as a first fruit. He is the first one to do this, to show that death no longer has control over our life, and he is living in a brand new way, in a brand new reality. And we, my friends, my brothers and sisters, we are part of that reality. Those who follow Jesus are ones that are already living it, and that's why Renew, that is what we are supposed to be about, to be living in a new reality. We're still waiting for the fullness of time. That's what we celebrate every year at Christmas. We call it Advent. It's just a funny word for waiting. We're waiting in anticipation for God to come again. And so if that is amazing enough, we also have to see the fact that not only is God and what he's doing in this community just absolutely amazing, but he's actually inviting us into fellowship with the Father and the Son, that our trust is not just rooted in these ideas, but it's rooted in, in a relationship with God, with the person of God. We're invited and included. We are invited and included. All of us are invited and included into relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There should be an empty table on this thousand-year-old painting for us, resembling who we are, because we are caught up in that relationship of the Trinity. And so our calling now is to invite others into this reality. John is reminding this church who may be scared or may be worried or clearly has gone through quite some of the church infighting and quite of the, the issues that happen in all communities. And he's reminding them who they are. That, hey, your fellowship isn't about your likes and your wants. It's about the fact that I've invited you into this new community, this redeemed community. And now we are called to invite others into this reality. I mean, I... There's so many stories. I love the way people call others into the reality. We have some folks, Kent and Cindy Gerhardt, um, they call others into the reality of Jesus by being present at places like Biggie, where Biggie's, which is, uh, which is a, a biker bar uh, that they go and they minister to on a daily basis. Uh, they're there getting to know people, loving people super well. They've invited their house church into that mess. And I love it because it is saying, if our goal is to, is to call people into this invitational, into this relationship with the God of the universe, then that's what we're going to be part of. That's what we're going to give our life to. Um, there was this amazing, one of the things that shaped me the most, when I was a young Christian, I was kind of dumb. I didn't know much. All I knew is I was supposed to read the Bible and did what it said. That's, you know, do what it says. That's all I knew. And I remember we were driving one, one, one beautiful, sunny uh, it was a beautiful sunny afternoon. We're driving out. We're heading over to a Denny's, a buddy of mine, and we drive by this lady sitting on a curb, and she's just sitting there, and I'm like, oh, that's, you know, weird. There's always people sitting on a curb. And just like the Spirit spoke in such a clear way in my brain. It's like, you need to go back. And I literally pull in, and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? It's like, just look at her, you know, and I'm like, well, I guess I'll just tell her that Jesus loves her because I just learned that song, and I should just try that. I say, hey, I, I, this is going to be really weird, but Jesus loves you. And like she just starts weeping. So we take her out to dinner and like we just hear all these stories and like the, we just watch Jesus begin to enter into this woman's life and just begin to transform her right before our eyes. 
And sometimes God does that. Sometimes just the name of Jesus spoken in someone's world and someone's reality shakes things up and pulls them out into new realities and new places. And you see freedom just pop out of their life. Where they were once held captive, God shows up and pulls them out. And it's amazing. There's also guys like a couple guys I play hockey with. After 12 years of being with this dude, uh, um, two months ago, I get a phone call. Hey, I just want to let you know, I just read the Bible and I'm now a Jesus follower. Like 12 years later, like, holy smokes, this is the longest thing ever. So Kent, there is hope. It took 12 years. And there's a whole other team of guys that haven't quite made it there yet. But what I understand is there's something about the name of Jesus and that John is calling this community back to that. It's like, do you remember who you are? You're not part of the present age. You're part of the age to come. You're part of a bigger story. You're part of a story that is not that's not sunk into the everyday mundane things, but it is part that actually comes above that. It gives new meaning to the everyday mundane things, and it sees Jesus as the King and Lord over all of life. And so as we look at the next few paragraphs, we see that the message that John is teaching to his people, and let's, let's pay attention to this. This, this message that, G, that John has is this, Jesus has called you out of sin. My friends, he's called us out of sin. Sin sucks. I'm going to say that. We need, to, we need to affirm that. Like, amen, it does. It destroys relationships with our, with our friends. It destroys a relationship with God. It destroys things. That's what sin does. And it's terrible. But Jesus shows up, and he calls us out of the shadow of guilt and shame that death has brought, and he calls us into the light. We are people who have been walking around in the darkness for so long that it's hard for our eyes to continue to adjust to see what life is supposed to look like. And it takes time. That's why a formation community called the church is so important because we need one another to figure out how do we live this life that we call to be Jesus followers. It takes time. It takes time with Jesus and his community to help us form our identity. And we hear all the time that Jesus forgives and that he calls, his he calls us his children, but we struggle to believe this new identity. And this is why I think John's writing this foundational truth to remind us that this is the most important foundational part, that our God loves us so much that he died for us to forgive us of our sins, to give us new life, and to invite us into a new way of living. And I love this. And, and what John says is, so we confess our sins. If you're sinning, confess your sins. And I think the problem is so many of us have confessed our sins and we've been met with like, you know, the, the baseball bats or, 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 or the beatings or the shaming or the guilt. But what we encounter when we confess our sins to Jesus is forgiveness. And that changes everything. It puts something brand new in our heart and it turns the, the dirty, dark things into these sweet places of brand new life. We recognize that we're not perfect. This is one of my favorite mantras. This is why I knew I was at the right church. Uh, when JR told me the first time I met with him years and years ago, one of our mantras is this, and you can find it on our website, no perfect people allowed. That begins with the pastors. It's like, this is my, these are my people. We are good. And so when, when we confess, we do not meet an angry, vengeful God. We meet one who is merciful, compassionate, one that forgives us, cleanses us, and brings us into the light. The author is writing to these people, and I am convinced that he is writing to us today. And he's asking those that have claimed not to sin to say, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. You are struggling. You need to be reminded that you have sinned and that you are forgiven. And we come to that. 
And so we see this time and time again in uh, uh, we, we, what John does in this, in this thing as, as he's recognizing there are people that actually believe that they, that they don't sin is he's sort of, a, he's attacking this heresy that's come up really early within the church that Jesus wasn't really human. He was just the spiritual thing. And so what that means for us is anything that's human is bad. Everything that's spiritual is good. And so that's why in the very first paragraph, John says this. He says, Jesus was seen, gazed upon, and touched. He was real in the flesh. The fancy theological term is he was incarnate. We talk about the, the power of the incarnation. This is the foundational truth that changes everything. Jesus was life. He was human. He understands what it's like. The fact that God became human is an understanding that it is our humanity in which Jesus is working to redeem and to bring into fullness as unbroken image bearers. He is in the process of working us out into brand new creatures, brand new creation. And so that is why as Christian community, we do cry out and we mourn and we grieve when we see the injustices of racism and sexism and classism, because we belong to a kingdom that will one day be fully realized that stands in complete opposition to the evil that we see in the world in which we live, because we are part of a much bigger story. We cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come, as we read our Facebook feeds, as we see the way our neighbors are treated, as we watch marriages around us and relationships around us fall apart. We cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. So life in Jesus is life like we have never imagined possible. We are children of God now, now, this very moment. And what we will be, as it says later in 1 John, has not yet been revealed, but we do know that we will be like him. Friends, our faith must be earthy. A lot of people give John a hard time and say he's way too fluty in how he talks and he's real like kind of flowery with his language, but the truth is this is an earthly, this is an earthy dirt book that is calling people to very simple implications, very simple applications. And our faith must be earthy. It must have impact on our daily lives, on our neighbors, on our enemies, on the ones who are different than we. And as we hear this tonight, we all hear this from very different places. Some of us are in the midst of a storm. Uh, most of us are in hurried lives. Some of us are in quiet places or in um, retirement or in the different places in which we are. Some of us are just finished high school. Some of us are thinking about grad school. Some of us just finished grad school. But some of us are moms or dads staying at home. Some of us are in cubicles all day, but we're all over the map. But this book comes to us this evening. This truth that we've been forgiven and saved from death, but yet we've also been saved into a new kingdom and a new reality where Jesus is Lord. That is the truth we need to hear this evening. That is the identity that we need to be reminded of. And so will, will we receive this today? Will we recognize that we have been forgiven and that Jesus has done it? That we no longer have to live within the shadows, but we are called to the light. And we are no longer, and we have never been asked to be the end users of that amazing gift of love. We are called to follow Jesus, to steward that love well in the way that we love our neighbors, the way that we love our enemies, in the way that we bear witness to this amazing gift that God has given us. 
to be shaped by these stories and to see our story mimicking Jesus in the way that five-year-olds holding hand mirrors and tears longing to look more like a pirate. That's how God is calling us to think about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these words penned to a church years and years and years ago. And God, I ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. I sense that some of us have been uh, really bogged down by sin, um, and it has been a present reality, and we've been hiding in the shadows for way too long. And so uh, in Jesus' name, I pray for courage for those to come out of those shadowy spaces and to, and to come into the light and to see God show up in an amazing way. Lord, I ask for this community uh, as, as we uh, pray uh, as a community, Luke 10, 2, that we would recognize that we have a calling, that all of us have a calling to see the name of Jesus be proclaimed on the mountaintops, to be uh, whispered to our neighbors uh, as we mow, to have opportunities to see Jesus enter into the stories of the people around us and begin to radically shift and change. Lord, thank you for calling us all to be part of a radical community called the church, one that actually believes that we are not stuck in sin and death. We've been called to new life. In your name we pray, amen.